a Cleveland Jewish News production. This episode contains explicit language and graphic descriptions of violence that some may find distressing and that might be unsuitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised. The time on the surveillance camera footage reads 5.21 p.m. The date is March 24th, 2013. As the seconds tick away, 56, 57, 58, 59, a figure cuts through the right side of the frame. It's like a shadow crossing the screen, legs and arms flailing at a frantic pace as they flee Erie View Plaza, which you can see in the background. Concealed by layers of dark clothing and mask, the figure is faceless and almost shapeless. This is Eliza Sherman's killer. This surveillance footage, taken from a camera mounted on the ceiling of a ground-level parking garage, was released within a month of her murder. You might have seen it on the news. It's common for police departments to release photos or video to the public for help identifying a suspect, and that's what Cleveland police did. Hopes were high it'd bring a quick end to their investigation. It didn't, but you already knew that. You might not have known there's another video. A second camera positioned high above Erie View Plaza captured surveillance video that fateful day, a video that wasn't shared with the public out of respect for Eliza's family. It shows Eliza's murder. It appears that uh, he startles her. This is former Deputy Chief Ed Tamba, who led Cleveland Police's homicide unit in 2013. He's seen the tape many times. It shows Eliza outside the entrance of 75 Erie View Plaza. As you know, if you're familiar with the scene, it seems like they, the perpetrator enters the frame from the East 9th Street area between the two buildings where the, I think it was the AT&T building there, and um, Eliza turned and was startled by the person. Uh, the assault took place, and then the uh, assailant ran and ran down 12th Street. That's where that shared surveillance footage picks up. The perpetrator, who violently stabbed Eliza 11 times, urgently runs away from the scene, leaving tragedy and mystery in their wake. Two videos, both show Eliza's killer, yet still no arrest, or even a suspect. What makes it unique um, particularly in my almost 40 years of, of doing this, is that uh, we actually have a video of the murder, but I can't tell you if it's a man, a woman. I can't tell you the race. I can't really tell you anything about it, So uh, about that person. So it's really unusual. It's um, frustrating. It's not for lack of trying. Cleveland police had experts from Cleveland Clinic examine the assailant's gait as they fled. Detectives even asked NASA to enhance the video in hopes of uncovering at least one new trait or clue that would identify the attacker. It's the stuff TV crime dramas are made of, but nothing helped. The person's dressed in black and, you know, there's a covering on his or her face. So, I mean, I think that's the main, you know, the main part of it. Uh, you know, uh, that uh, jacket that uh, the perpetrator was wearing, you know, we, you know, we had three or four different examples of those jackets and we were looking for people that were 
you know, for months, years, you know, looking at someone, we noticed someone walking around with that dark kind of uh, puffy type jacket. And um, no, we never, never came across anybody like that. So um, that's, that's another uh, unusual, unique part of this case that uh, still challenges us today. Unique to investigators, infuriating to loved ones, confusing at best to those in the community who followed Elisa's case. In many ways, the surveillance footage epitomizes the exasperating energy around the ongoing investigation into her death, a seemingly perfect piece of evidence, but something that frustratingly provides too little to bring justice. Her murder is a whodunit that, on its face, seems like a script from CSI or Law and Order. The part that's missing is the tidy and timely ending. Who done it? Sure, people believe they know the answer, but the justice system is less certain, and ultimately there are more questions than answers. I mean, when we found out we had that video, we were all pretty excited about it, and we're like, oh, this, this, this is good. Let's get it out there. You know, let's see see what's what, you know, we, oh, we're going to be able to find out who's wearing that and who, you know, we'll, we'll be able to figure this one out. And it just, as time went by and went by, it just, that's that's the the, the nature of working, uh, you know, working those cases. Some of them seem like uh, they're right in front of you. And uh, here we sit 10 years later. I'm Mike Butts. And I'm Sarah Shookman. You're listening to Aliza, Her Story at 10 Years, a Cleveland Jewish news podcast about Aliza Sherman's life, loss, and legacy. Welcome to episode three. Mike and I are both journalists who for years have reported on Aliza's story. For many, her name is associated only with tragedy. Beachwood nurse and mother of four on the verge of a disputed divorce trial, stabbed 11 times and left for dead on the sidewalk. It's been 10 years and her case remains unsolved. In episode one, we introduced you to Eliza, not the murder victim, but the kind, caring, and principled woman whose background too often gets left out of news coverage. In episode two, we revisited March 24th, 2013, the day Eliza died and the lives of those who knew her changed forever. Now, we dig into what investigators have been up to since that day and how and why this murder case isn't solved yet. There are so many angles to this investigation that we decided to split this episode into two parts. Today, in part one, we'll revisit the scene of the crime and look at why many of Elisa's loved ones started raising questions about her estranged husband, Sanford. Deputy Chief Ed Tomba was off that Sunday afternoon, but responded to the scene of Aliza's murder. That was rare, but occasionally necessary, as part of his job was to respond to major incidents. I can't say I went out on every homicide uh, in the years that I was in charge, but it just seemed, I knew this was a little bit different. Given the high-profile location and vicious nature of the attack, it made sense. The murder, a stabbing death in broad daylight in a downtown business district, quickly got the attention of news media, and thereby Clevelanders. Mike McGrath, Cleveland police chief at the time, came out publicly just three days later, saying with confidence that Aliza's stabbing was a targeted attack. 
To be honest, and this is Sarah reflecting here, it seemed like a ploy to pacify a nervous community. How did they know? I asked Tamba. Well, it was, and I believe a lot of that information came from our homicide guys through me up to the, up to the chief, was that somebody knew date, time, and location where Elisa was going to be. You know, it wasn't, it was definitely, you know, not, uh, not random. Uh, going back, researching all the street crimes, uh, we had one in like five years, and I think it was a purse snatching on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, this wasn't something that was going on downtown. You know, a lot of it, you know, came from the family and then finding out more about uh, Aliza, what she was, uh, what she was doing down there. So um, that's still my, you know, contention today that, uh, you know, it was not random at all. That, like I said, somebody, there was only a very few people who knew where she was going to be and uh, what time she was going to be there. In the hours following the murder, patrol officers set up a perimeter to secure the crime scene. Evidence was marked, photographed, and collected by detectives. There wasn't a lot of areas to canvas, what we call canvas and conduct interviews. You know, sometimes if something happens in a neighborhood or at an entertainment establishment, you've got people you can talk to. You know, you can knock on doors. Did you hear anything? Did you see anything? You know, a lot of the businesses were all closed up. And like I said, there wasn't much, uh, wasn't much going on. Detectives spent the last days of March 2013 looking for clues. Rooftops, garbage cans, bushes and sewers were checked along the route police believed the attacker fled. We looked for days after for a possible weapon. Did you ever find one? No. No, we did not. Though they found surveillance video of the attacker, even of the act itself, it didn't amount to much. The puffy jacket, the escape route, the details officers did know didn't turn up many others. Tamba, who left Cleveland Police in 2017 to become chief of police in suburban Middleburg Heights, still can't shake the complexities of Elisa's case. Police have so much, but so little, or at least not enough. You know, you have somebody that was stabbed multiple times, and uh, we don't have any DNA. You know, we don't have a weapon. We've got a video of a suspect, and we don't have a suspect. So it's, um, to me, I, it's very unusual and, you know, really, really, really challenging. Even now, 10 years later. While authorities were navigating the crime scene, Kenny Shepard, the man who heard Aliza's screams from inside the building and spent her dying moments with her outside 75-year review, spoke to investigators. For 10 years, discontent and disappointment have simmered within Kenny. Not so much with the investigation, but with how authorities initially responded to the scene. That simmer has reached a boiling point. And in large part, that's why he chose to speak out and speak up now. After that 911 call, uh, like you said, I did speak with the police officer. Uh, there was an uh, officer that showed up immediately, within a minute or two. He kind of sat on the corner of 9th Street and St. Clair. So I ran to him when I saw him arrive, and I told her, she's over here, help me, help me. And the officer looked at me and said, I'm waiting for my supervisor. 
and rolled his window up on me and blew me off. So again, there's a buildup of anger here, you know, and I feel like the reason he did that was when he saw um, a black man in an all black suit come up, he didn't want to get involved with me because he, you know, he didn't know the situation either, or he just didn't care, which is what I got, because he kind of just sat there, leaned back like it was nothing. We tried to ask Cleveland police about crime scene response protocols through the department's spokesperson, but our requests for an interview or more information were not returned. From his perspective, Tamba, at least in terms of evidence collection and the investigation, believes things were handled as best they could be. The scene, everything went the way you would have expected it to when you respond to something like that? Yeah, it did. Um, You know, you always, uh, I think when you, you know, you may look back on things or have the, um, you know, uh, the ability to look back with hindsight, but uh, at the time, you know, we had, uh, you know, I think we had the uh, the right team of detectives, the right people there. Kenny had also hoped for help from the mall security guard at the gallery at Erie View, which is right next door to where he and Elisa were. The security guard saw me, and I'm telling him to come help me, and he just kind of turned around and went back into the gallery. So that kind of angered me big time. Kenny also sought immediate medical attention for Elisa. You hear the urgency in his voice when he calls 911. She is bad. Kenny told the dispatcher, she's got blood coming out of her mouth. Like I said, I did the 911 call. I begged and pleaded for the ambulance, but instead they sent the fire truck. And I understand that that's, you know, standard procedure for, you know, big metropolitan areas to kind of survey the situation and make a call from there. But I felt like I'm telling you guys that this is a life and death situation. She's dying right in front of my eyes and I need an ambulance. And they sent the you know fire unit and i was like that's not going to do this you know that was a lit down to me uh, on my behalf and on the city's behalf a lot of time was lost uh that fire truck fire truck it arrived within the you know normal time frame two to five minutes is what they usually say so they responded you know at a pretty fast time but uh it was not what we needed that day paramedics arrived like maybe five to ten minutes after that fire truck came We reached out to Cleveland Fire to ask about response protocols. In a statement, an official said it, quote, provides first responder emergency medical response support to Cleveland EMS whenever we are requested and respond accordingly as standard practice. Could Elisa's life have been saved? Maybe not. Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office determined she was stabbed in her face, her neck, her right ear, and eight times in her back. The bleeding might have been too much to control, but precious minutes, even seconds, were lost. Elisa was pronounced dead at Metro Health Medical Center, some five miles away, at 6.14 p.m. I feel in my heart that Galleria Security Guard, the Cleveland Police, you guys should be held accountable for your lack of response to this. Uh, even with specific instructions to send an ambulance and you send me a fire truck, I'm still angered by that, you know, because I felt like I'm not going to waste your time. I feel like I'm an educated man. If I needed a fire truck, I'd have called for a fire truck. I'm, I'm telling you, we need paramedics here. Can we get an ambulance here? Do whatever we can. You guys did that. So that it hurts my heart 
even 10 years later because I still think of all those factors. It didn't take long for fingers to start pointing to Elisa's husband, Samford Sherman. While not officially named a suspect by police, the court of public opinion was reaching its own verdict. Statistics are at least one reason why. A study published in 2017 by the CDC reports that 55 percent, more than half, of female homicide victims were killed in connection to intimate partner violence. Of that group, 8 in 10 were killed by a current partner. But it was more than the numbers. The divorce, too. Karen Chait was Elisa's friend and Penshurst Drive neighbor for 28 years. During that time, she witnessed firsthand the deterioration of Elisa and Sanford's marriage. Her home life initially was pretty normal. Sanford was working. He was uh, a friendly kind of person. But as the years progressed, he... Um, his life changed, his behavior changed, um, his moods changed, his whole demeanor changed. And uh, I, from, from very, very, very early on, I realized that uh, Lisa was an abused wife. Karen remembers that abuse taking many forms, from Elisa being locked out of the house, deprived of any control over family finances or decision making, to the tires on her car being flattened. I, I, I could rattle off 20 different examples of things that he did over the years. He, he was abusive in every possible way. I was around when police were, uh, when they came over, but I did not, I mean, the police were, if you know Beechwood as a, as a city, the police here get called for, for nothing. You know, I mean, it's, I've got a flat tire. But at their house, I mean, the police were there so frequently. It was just terrible. I mean, even the kids would call the police. You know, I think they were oftentimes with the children themselves called the police because of the screaming and, and abuse in the family. We told you that Beechwood police had been out to the house on several domestic disturbance calls, but Eliza never pressed charges. Karen said Eliza was likely too afraid of the consequences. Karen and her husband spoke to Cleveland police during the early days of their investigation. As friends who cared deeply for Eliza and who'd seen what she endured, their experiences with police weren't what they'd hoped. First of all, soon after, within the week of her murdered my husband went with Jennifer and went down to speak to the detective handling the case and I must say my husband walked out of there he said he just had such a bad feeling that they just I mean they they just didn't do take the steps that were needed in terms of a forensic on the on the computer the cell phone the car nothing they did nothing and then Sanford was still living across the road from us for months after the murder and I noticed like for weeks he wasn't coming and going I mean we literally look into his driveway so we can see when he comes out when he goes in and I noticed that he wasn't there and I, I called the detective and I said do you have any idea where Dr. Sherman is that you know he could have just fled the country she said why should we why should we care he's not a suspect 
And I said, if you don't think he's a suspect, I don't know what you're doing on your job. You know, like, what are you thinking? She didn't care. She didn't care if he was in Europe. And, and for weeks he was not here. It's incomprehensible. To, you know, any murder, the first suspect is going to be the spouse. Others close to Eliza started to collectively point the finger at Sanford. Tension within the community was palpable, and it came to a head very publicly, even during her funeral. Family and friends alike tell us Eliza and Sanford's oldest child, Josh, had often sided with his dad when the family was split by arguments and shouting. Like his siblings, he stepped to the mic to address an overcrowded room of 600-plus mourners at Berkowitz Kuman Bookett's Memorial Chapel. And he got up, I mean, this was the most embarrassing thing I've ever witnessed in my life, where he got up and he said, my father didn't fucking murder her in front of all these people that have come to pay respects to his mother. I was so shocked. Mary Fuhrer remembers it too. Honestly, Sarah again here, it was shocking. People gasped out loud. If you were there, like I was, I don't know how you could forget. You know, I've known Josh since he was a little, little boy. And he was really a sweet kid when he was little. A really nice boy. I always loved him. But over those last divorce years, he really was influenced by a very tough father who's very manipulating. Abusive and manipulating are how some of Elisa's friends characterize Samford. Elisa's brothers add mean-spirited to that description. I don't think he could find two people that were more mismatched. She wasn't really appreciated at all in the way we think she should have been. That's Elisa's brother, Harry Zinn, who used to talk to her about divorce. He'd gone through one himself and, though not a lawyer, represented himself during those proceedings. You know, we miscalculated a few things, which is unfortunate, you know, as to how, uh, how uh, mean-spirited and somebody could actually be. <laughs> it went beyond anything we could have imagined because we didn't grow up seeing anything like some of the things uh, I think Elisa had to experience, which really really too bad. Just how bad things were during the two years the divorce dragged on came more into focus after Elisa's death. Initial court filings show it didn't seem Elisa had a will. However, on July 30th, 2013, Sanford presented a will to Cuyahoga County Probate Court while applying to become executor of her estate. The will was dated December 2006 and indicated everything would be left to him. Still her lawful spouse, he was appointed executor that same day. You know, somebody dies, whether it's by wrongful conduct or just natural causes, before the divorce is concluded or a divorce order comes out, and the divorce essentially evaporates And from, from a legal perspective. That's attorney Adam Freed, Elise's daughter, Jennifer Sherman, hired him from the Reminger Law Firm in downtown Cleveland. As a probate attorney, I'm, I'm mostly a probate, uh, they call, uh, the word is litigator. 
So I try a lot of cases. I take a lot of depositions. I'm always embattled in, in my cases. I don't really handle the simple uh, uh, tr uh, transactional work. I like the, 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 messy. the I, I get stuck in the messy. Freed assisted Jen with filing an application for guardianship of her brother, Jeremy, who was 17 at the time and still lived at home with his parents. He also advocated for Jen to become executor of Elisa's estate instead of Sanford. On behalf of the estate, they challenged whether Sanford should serve as executor. Freed argued Sanford was unfit because the ongoing investigation into Elisa's murder resulted in a conflict of interest. An executor, in carrying out the terms of a will, is obligated to advocate for the best interests of an estate's beneficiaries. While reviewing documents, files, and accounts were typical of a legal challenge like this, they came across Elisa's handwritten notes and emails that shed light on her fears. They're devastating. They're devastating because they talk about a person who is really being, I, I, the best word I can think of is gaslighted, and who's afraid. Freed shared with us one she wrote to her first divorce attorney, Joe Stafford. An email dated January 16, 2012, from Elisa. Joe, you saw me today. Worse than ever. So jittery. Been getting worse every day. Anxious. Nightmares. Afraid to sleep. He looks deranged. The quiet is worse than the yelling. Because I know he is thinking and planning. Please believe me, I am really afraid. I think he is going to do something really bad. I kept having low air in my tire went to Goodyear after putting air in the four days, uh, said small nail, showed me nail, so small, doubt it could go through the tire. Then I drive Jason's car for a few weeks. Front tire starts losing air suddenly, even after air put in. Feel he is out to punish me. I am really afraid he is going to have me killed. I am of sound mind. I just know him. His behavior is very odd. Blank look. Very scary. My brothers and friends say they fear for my safety. I worry for my children, mom, pets, and my own safety. He won't stop at anything. He's determined to destroy me. His room is above mine. He has been pacing for a while. Don't know what to do. Can't leave. Won't leave Jeremy with him stuck if he gets made to leave. He will go nuts. This is why I have been going crazy. I am afraid of him and what he will do. I don't think... Attorney a Wolf knows what a deranged man he is working with. If he doesn't win, he will crack. Don't know what to do. I know more repercussions coming. They always did. Concerned she might need them one day, Eliza kept a file of those emails. In fact, she often sent them to herself so there'd be electronic copies, too. Mary shared another email. I'm holding an email that... Elisa sent to Joe Stafford. The date was sent February 2012. Hi, Joe. Was wondering what is happening with my case. Life is unbearable. He is still in the home, controlling everything from the heat, kids, to the mail. I just, I don't, that's all I want to share. But those were the kind of emails, and it would go in detail of what she was living through. 
Also in those documents were notes from Eliza about forged signatures and transfers of money, which Eliza had started to investigate during the divorce to determine what was rightfully hers. On September 13, 2013, Samford resigned as executor of Eliza's estate, clearing the way for Jen and Josh to become co-executors. On behalf of Eliza's estate, Jen filed a civil suit against Samford in May 2014 related to those financial findings. The five-count suit alleged conversion, breach of fiduciary duty, unjust enrichment, civil remedy for criminal acts, and civil conspiracy. Information was collected and depositions performed to gain a full understanding of what might have been done. In May 2016, Sanford's attorney, Brian Green, filed a motion for summary judgment in the case, which, if granted, would stop it from going to trial. The next month, Freed filed an opposing motion. In their filings, Green and Freed each include information to support their arguments. In Freed's motion is where details about Eliza and Samford's divorce process were brought to light. The document totaled a whopping 619 pages and painted a sordid picture of Samford that included him admitting to an extramarital affair and details of a defamation lawsuit involving an exotic dancer. The suit alleges that in early 2013, during the discovery process of the divorce case, forensic accounting was conducted and confirmed that a Merrill Lynch financial account in Elisa's name only was surreptitiously opened by Sanford in May 2000. Between 2000 and 2010, Sanford allegedly made more than $2 million in secret deposits into the account. However, the suit argued that in 2004, Sanford forged a durable power of attorney that provided him the authority to withdraw funds from the account. In the ensuing six years, the account was entirely depleted. This is Adam Freed again. Whether she knew it was there or not, it became legally hers when it was deposited into her account. A handwriting expert said there's a, quote, strong probability that Eliza did not write any of the signatures needed to open the account or complete these transactions. We hired a forensic uh, examiner, handwriting expert, who uh, uh, swore an affidavit that it was probably not Elisa's handwriting. During a deposition, Sanford said he spoke at length with Elisa regarding the account, and that not only did she understand the arrangement, she agreed to have him handle paying bills and making investments. Green, Sanford's attorney, argued the money from the fund was used to pay for family expenses such as household bills, credit card debt, and tuition. Freed, however, argued the funds weren't used for family expenses, but instead for strippers and mistresses. Court documents spell out a trip to New York City sometime between 2007 and 2009 that Sanford paid for and on which he and a friend spent days with a woman it alleged Sanford was dating. Sanford had previously met the woman in 2006 in Boca Raton, Florida. It also introduced details about a defamation lawsuit that involved Sanford allegedly making sexual advances toward an exotic dancer and threatening to kill her and her father, all while impersonating his own cousin. But the most shocking discovery came from the deposition of Sanford's friend, Larry Shanker, a former police officer who said Sanford asked him 
how someone would go about committing, quote, the perfect murder. Let me repeat that. The perfect murder. Larry and Sanford were friends. They would walk on the beach, according to Larry, or walk somewhere, and Sanford would, would ask him how to commit the perfect murder. That's essentially what he testified to in his um, deposition. Shanker testified that Sanford asked him about this repeatedly. During his deposition on April 21, 2015, Shanker told Reminger attorney Jason Winter that he provided Sanford with his scenario for committing a perfect murder. My experience, if I was going to commit a crime, how would I do it? And by a crime, he was referring to murder? Yes. How many times did he ask you that question? Repeatedly. When you say repeatedly, more than 10 times? He'd repeat everything more than 10 times. If, one, if somebody was going to commit murder, how would they get away with it? A perfect murder. Okay. And in response to that question, when he would ask it, what did you say? I gave him my scenario. And what's your scenario? Pretty much the obvious. I think almost anybody would think of these, the fact that you don't use your car or don't let your car be seen. Don't use a gun because it could be heard. Don't use your street clothes. Use something that would cover up your entire body, your face, your hands. Don't use a gun because it would make noise. Let's review. No gun was used in Elisa's murder. No car was identified on any surveillance footage related to Elisa's murder. And as you'll remember from earlier in this episode, the killer can't be identified because their entire body, face, and hands are covered up. When reached by phone to comment on any portion of this podcast, Sanford refused. I can't say that there are things that I uncovered that investigators didn't, but I had a unique opportunity to depose Sanford for eight hours. And there's information in there, obviously. And, uh, and we were also able to get that information from Larry Shanker. We put together a tremendous amount of information and organized it. In August 2016, Sanford paid $100,000 to settle the civil suit. The estate released him from future claims. Well, not all future claims. There's some nuance there. We went to a mediation. The nuance is that it did not release wrongful death claims. So if a wrongful death suit is brought against him or somebody else or a combination of people, uh, that would be available today. Part two of this episode will dig deeper into the investigation. When Eliza died, there was a short list of people who knew where she was going to be and what time. As this was a targeted attack, investigators like Ed Tamba feel strongly her killer was one of them. Someone who certainly knew where she was that day, her own attorney. Her attorney. Gregory Moore is one that, you know, the only one that's ever been charged in connection with this case. And he lied to you. He did. Yep, he did. 
Aliza, Her Story at 10 Years is produced by the Cleveland Jewish News. Executive producers are Kevin S. Edelstein and Jennifer Sherman. Today's episode was produced by Mike Butts, Amanda Kane, Deanna McKeegan, Cheryl Sadler, and me, Sarah Shookman. It was edited by Amanda Kane and Deanna McKeegan and written by Mike Butts and me. Cover art design by Bella Bendo and Jessica Simon. Special thanks to Solly Granitstein, Michael Chong, and Efron Films. Our theme music is Particles by Nobu. Additional music in this episode is by Artie Sun, Alan Pertez, and Nobu. The reward for information leading to Eliza Sherman's killer stands at $100,000, the largest reward in the history of Crime Stoppers of Cuyahoga County. Anyone with information regarding Eliza Sherman's murder should contact Crime Stoppers at 216-252-7463 or 25crime.com. That's 25crime.com. Callers can remain anonymous and are eligible to receive a cash reward if the information given leads to an arrest or grand jury indictment of a felony offender. To learn more or support the Eliza Sherman Fund, visit give.ccf.org slash Eliza Sherman Fund. To read more about Eliza's story and listen to other episodes in this series, visit cjn.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.